This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you. Well, th- thanks, Hannah, and thanks to all of you for that very warm welcome. I think uh, I'm going to give a little fuller introduction to our three panellists before setting out something of how the evening will work. You've already heard just in headline form who they are, but uh, let me just tell you that uh, we have to kick off our lineup a leading American political thinker and the first woman, I think it's fair to say, to serve as director of the policy planning department at the United States State Department. She served there when Barack Obama was president. Yes, that did really happen. And when <laughs> Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. She's the president and CEO of New America. And her new book, and that's going to form a central part of our conversation, is The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Network world. She'll be signing copies of it straight after this session, but a warm welcome for Anne-Marie Slaughter. (laughs) Next up is the chief executive of Nesta, the Innovation Foundation. He's a senior visiting scholar at Harvard, founded the think tank Demos, and was head of the policy unit uh, under Tony Blair. He has a long-standing interest on what he called in a book published nearly 20 years ago, uh, recently, Connexity, and has written and thought often about the growing connectedness of our world, which uh, I think it's fair to say he regards as one of the most important social and economic facts of our time. He is Jeff Mulgan. And com- completing our lineup for this conversation, somebody who needs very little introduction to this or any other audience, he served as a cabinet minister in the governments of both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in a dizzying array, really, of ministries uh, as Home Secretary, as Foreign Secretary, Leader of the Commons, and as Justice Secretary. He represented Blackburn in the House of Commons from 1979 right through until the last election, uh, and now a visiting professor at the School of Public Policy at University College London, a warm welcome for Jack Straw. So our theme is one that really brings together the big uh, social transformation, social and cultural and economic transformation of our time with the geopolitics of our world, and that is this shift that has happened really in the lifetimes of most of the people in this room, including even the young ones, uh, which is to a networked world, uh, expressed most obviously and manifested most obviously in the shift uh, to online and to the internet, but how it's affected and transformed the way businesses are run, 
the way the, our economies work. And I think it's going to be part of the thesis we're discussing, whether the architecture of our world has caught up with this big shift. Uh, and it couldn't be more timely, partly because some of these themes, which were just taken as read that these were accelerating and gaining strength, a story, it could be said, and we'll again discuss this, of the last nine months or so, is a sort of global effort to slam the brakes on these trends. And where, whether though that howl of rage and that determination to stop this motion is going to be effective but, or what it uh, does to these trends is going to be one of the themes. I thought what we would do is um, as follows. We're going to have a conversation, the three of us up here or four of us up here, for the first half, more or less, of our time. Then we're going to open it out and hear contributions from all of you. Uh, but because um, central to the uh, evening's discussion is this new book by Anne-Marie Slaughter. We're going to set aside some time just to let Anne-Marie set out her stool. But before we do that, let's just hear from each of our three speakers how they first came to this subject, really, um, and sort of what starting instincts or prejudices they bring to it. So why don't we just kick off with you, Anne-Marie. You know, here's a whole book which has networking and networks uh, at their core, how did you, somebody who's in the world of foreign policy and other things, get first interested in this? Well, I started writing about networks in 1994 as a young legal scholar, but I think I was first introduced to the concept when I was a first-year law student and I read a book by Carol Gilligan called In a Different Voice. And it's actually about adolescent girls and adolescent boys and how they reason, but she described two ways of thinking about power. You could be in a ladder or a hierarchy, in which case power meant being at the top. Or you could be in a web or a network, in which case power meant being at the center. And I remember thinking, that explains something about myself to me, that I was not that interested in being the top, at the top, but very interested in being at the center. Um, well, just because you've mentioned her and you, is that a woman thing, do you think? <laughs> I think women come to exercising power laterally, naturally, because we've had very little opportunity to exercise it at the Vertically. top of a ladder. <laughs> very interesting. Well, we, we might pick up more of that too. So, Jeff, I slightly teasingly referred to the book you wrote 20 years ago with the name Connexity. Teasingly, because at the time I remember saying to you, do you think this word Connexity will take off? And, um, well, I'll leave it to our audience to decide whether the word did, but the thesis is what's important. How did you become interested in connexity, as you called it then? Well, connexity was actually a very old English word, but one which hasn't yet revived, sadly, <laughs> in the language, but uh, I, I'm patient. So in, in my mid-twenties, I was made redundant and, uh, from a job I had, and a friend advised me that if I didn't want that to happen repeatedly through my life, I should learn about uh, the technologies which were changing the world, so I took uh, her advice, actually, uh, and went to MIT and did a, a PhD in telecommunications, mingling with a lot of the people who were sort of creating the internet and the World Wide Web and so on. And it was a very useful experience in all sorts of ways, maybe see the world in a different way, though sadly, um, still the case that when my phone breaks, as it did this morning, I can't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Good, thank you. And to you, Jack Shaw, I think you would have been foreign secretary when some of this stuff was exploding, and certainly you were coming into government just as people were talking uh, about these new technologies. But you'd also been, and you'd served in government in the pre-internet era, you know, there as an advisor in the 70s, etc. What, what change do you notice in 
either the world when you're a foreign secretary or even in just being a minister and doing your job as these technologies and these, this way of working was beginning to unfold before your eyes? Well, the, the biggest change was, it was in the, the speed and pace of politics. So if I compare my time in government with the time of my, the people like two cabinet ministers I worked for in the 70s, Barbara Castle and Peter Shaw, um, they were very busy, uh, but the, the, just the pace was, was different. Uh, and in terms of foreign policy, um, mobile telephones were becoming ubiquitous as I became foreign secretary. Uh, and that meant the opportunity for what Douglas Heard, one of my predecessors, described as diplomatic tourism, uh, were greatly reduced uh, because you could always be got hold of. Uh, and in any event, the fact that you were, could be on the phone any time of the day or night cut down uh, the need for travel. The thing that got me interested in the subject, by the way, was Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat, uh, and I bought a copy, and I uh, invited my private office in the Foreign Office to read it as well, to share his insights. Because he was beginning to talk about these yes. things. Uh, Out of interest, when you were Foreign Secretary, did you have a computer on your desk? Uh, I'm trying to remember. <clears throat> but I, I, no, I, I don't think I did. Uh, and... Uh, it was when I became Justice Secretary I got a computer on my desk and started typing my own speeches. So in the Foreign Office, there wasn't a computer on my desk. There were computers uh, outside. I don't want to get the wrong idea about the Foreign Office. No, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember very shortly... And this would have been 2001 to 2005. 2001, yeah. And people wouldn't have had... I mean, you, uh, uh, and your counterparts around the world wouldn't have uh, had a... Uh, the Secretary of State uh, wouldn't uh, have had uh, a computer on there. No, and I, not, and, yeah. and my... Uh, Colin Powell used to email me uh, from his private server? Yes. From, <laughs> yeah, from, from, from his private server yeah. to my wife's uh, personal email account. Uh-huh. <laughs> really? Uh, and uh, really? We, uh, some, of these, some of these emails uh, had to be uh, submitted in evidence to the Chilcot inquiry uh, with my wife's uh, email address deleted. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, some of them were, were, were very interesting indeed. Uh, uh, and I think Colin judged it was safer to use an AOL account to uh, some minor IT provider in Britain than to rely on the State Department. Where were you during the U.S. election, please? <laughs> Seriously, that would have been very useful to, to have known that then. That, that's going to be one of the great what-if footnotes of history. Because that would, with his wife's server at AOL. Have, it would have proved what Hillary did was nothing by comparison. All right, well, we, we gathered here because we want to talk uh, particularly about what's prompted this discussion, Anne-Marie, is your book. Uh, and it has this arresting image right in there in the title about the chessboard and the web. Uh, and I thought it would be useful if you just set out what you mean by those two terms uh, and how you see, because what's interesting is, even though it sounds like there's either the chessboard or the web, much of your book is devoted to saying how these two might coexist and sort of rub along together. So why don't you just set out that part of the argument? Exactly. Uh, so the chessboard, I think, is, is familiar to all of you, whether you've actually thought about the uh, exact metaphor or not. But, but when we think about uh, international relations or foreign policy, uh, we typically think of it as a game of great powers, uh, a game for strategic advantage. So if you were to read Henry Kissinger's memoirs or the memoirs of statesmen, uh, generally, j the metaphor of chess is often invoked. Sometimes it's poker, uh, so or, or uh, perhaps even less uh, uh, other games. But it is very much 
uh, a few states, and we're trying to imagine we're going to do this and they're going to do that. The United States and Russia today, or Great Britain and Russia today, we do this, they do that. We try to anticipate what they're going to do, and it's essentially uh, a zero-sum game. Uh, and that is very true still as we look around the world, if we look at great powers, the relations between, again, U.S. and Russia now, or China, or Iran, North Korea, we are still in a chessboard world. But we are equally in a networked world. And those two things exist side by side or one on top of the other when we think about terrorism, when we think about any kind of global crime, when we think about uh, development issues, health or education or fighting poverty or <clears throat> conflict prevention. Those are often, the, they're the province of networks of corporations, of civic organizations, of universities. Uh, so that world exists next to the chessboard world. But the difference is, at least in foreign policy, we don't have tools. So we know in the world of the chessboard we have sanctions, we have the threat of force, we have the use of force, we have an entire panoply of diplomatic initiatives that we can use to put pressure on another country uh, or to, to cooperate with another country. When it comes to connections, and I will not speak for the British government, but in the American government, when President Obama wanted to create a new beginning with the Islamic world, effectively all he could do was to call summits, summits of entrepreneurs, summits of scientists, bring everybody together, connect them that one time, and then maybe try to keep them uh, talking to each other a little bit afterwards, but that was it. And what this book is about is to take network theory, uh, a great mass of it, which I have boiled down and made as simple as possible, really repeating Jeff's a lot of Jeff's work in Connexity 20 years later, to say, no, there are different kinds of networks. There are resilience networks, there are task networks, there are scale networks. Each one has a different structure. Each can be connected a certain way. Each needs to be led and managed. And that's a set of foreign policy tools that are necessary for the networked world. And part of what you described there is a, a word that recurs again and again is open. And the notion that the big divide was open, the big divide now in our world is between open and closed. And you talk about, you know, in three levels, open society and open governments and, uh, uh, and even an open international system. And there is a lot of idealism in that. And what struck me reading it was that you were clearly to come out now in, you know, April 2017, but you would have done much of the work before now and particularly before last year. And whether or not the world you are not just hoping for, but even the presence that you're starting from, has been fiercely rolled back by the two big, for us anyway, feel like the two big events of last year, namely Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. And that you're, there you are sort of hoping to make the world even more open, but these two big developments seem to suggest electorates in these two important countries saying, actually, we want it to be more closed. Close. Yes. Yes, and I, I definitely... Uh, imagined, I think, writing that last chapter, uh, open versus closed, and a strategy of what I call open order building. Uh, I did imagine the United States was on the side of open. Uh, under uh, President Obama, Secretary Clinton uh, gave a big speech on internet freedom and the right to connect, and, and we were pushing against China or Russia who are closing down, controlling the internet, putting up walls. Uh, and yes, it's something of a surprise to find my own country uh, on that side. Uh, that said, I think the 
the importance of standing for open is more important than ever. I do think my definition of open is very, very similar, actually, to things that Jeff has written, which is, you know, open society is a participatory uh, society. It's a transparent society. It isn't necessarily a society that lets anyone in. Uh, you, it doesn't say that you don't have, have borders. An open government is, again, a transparent government, an accountable government, a participatory government. So even in my own uh, recommendation for what we need to be uh, advocating in the world, certainly we the United States, and I would say Britain as well, and other European countries, we have more work to do on the, uh, connecting our governments to our citizens, and that is part of an open government and an open society, as we do pushing that for other nations. But is it the case that the, all the various sort of improvements you are looking for and calling for Actually, now your feeling would be, well, look, those can wait. Just holding on to what we've already got would be something. I mean, for example, you have a section there about the United Nations, and you say that this kind of, it's quite creaky machinery from 1945. And I would imagine myself thinking, well, if I'd been reading that in you know, April or May last year, I'd have agreed with you. We need to change it. Now what I think is just holding on to yes. it would be a great yep. achievement, yep. particularly with you know, the, the current U.S. administration's attitude to the U.N. Yes, I do think that. I, I was, what I wrote, and I do believe, is that it is almost impossible to imagine that in 20, 20, 2045, the world will be governed by the victors in, of 1945. That really defies uh, imagination. And so I was saying we need to open up the, inter, the UN order, but you are absolutely right. Right now, I'm deeply concerned that... If you imagine Iraq invading Kuwait, as happened in 1991, if that were to happen tomorrow, mm. I do not think that the, the United States government would do anything at the UN. Uh, the British government is rather preoccupied. Uh, the French government alone, probably not. The EU is not thinking about anything other than keeping itself together. So what would happen? It's quite possible that China and Russia would be calling the shots, and effectively then the order we've built thus far is deeply in peril. So I'm going to bring in Jeff and Jack in a minute. Just there were a couple of very arresting examples, concrete examples, which I wanted to bring out because I think they make vivid some of your argument. This notion of open society and open government, how, what transparency really would look like. I think very boldly you deliberately go for, one, for a hard case, not an easy case. Uh, we're used to governments operating. It would be interesting to hear you, Jack, Straw, respond to this, I think, uh, in, in, with a kind of necessary level of secrecy just in order to get things done. And you give us the example of 9-11 and how even something like that could have been handled completely differently. Why don't you tell people what you had in mind? Yes, in, in terms of open society and thinking, instead of a culture of secrecy, a culture of actually sharing information. And so the example uh, being given was, imagine that once 9-11 started, or even, even beforehand, where... Uh, you would be broadcasting that that you know this plane is in the sky. Who knows about it? Who has some? Who knows someone on the plane? How can they communicate? Uh, how can citizens actually contribute their knowledge to enhance our increased security? Uh, and that culture of openness rather than secrecy, particularly in a world in which, as we tragically know. Even here in London, threats can be anywhere. Uh, actually encouraging citizens to take hold of their own security is actually a better model uh, than assuming the government's going to keep us safe. And you've you said in there that even as early as August 2001, when there were reports of 
there was some chatter around about people going taking flight lessons. You were saying that if the American government had said that to the US people, then the people sitting on those planes would, have would, not, would, have, would not have believed it when the hijacker said, we're, gonna, we're returning back to Logan Airport. And maybe they would have done, as the passengers on United 93 did, have rebelled. Have rebelled. And that would exactly. have obviously been a very different outcome. And it struck me as a tremendously powerful example. You were just newly installed as a foreign yeah. minister then in the Foreign Office in August 2001. The idea of if you had seen intelligence like that, going public with it in order that passengers on planes could be more vigilant, what do you think of that idea? Well, I'm afraid to say I've, I found uh, this example that Anne-Marie used in an otherwise very convincing book very unconvincing. <laughs> uh, un- unconvincing. One for uh, two. Uh, uh, and I want to say, say why, because um, the kind of intelligence you get uh, is stuff that says, you know, they picked up from somebody, it might, might be from uh, what's called SIGINT, from signals intelligence, uh, people being listened to, the, their emails being tracked, but you get traces of information, or, or you may have uh, a, a human source also giving you an idea of what may happen. Um, That's coming through all the time. Um, It's extraordinarily rare, uh, sometimes it happens, for the agencies and then the decision makers above them to be told that they have hard evidence of that X is about to happen. Where you get that, uh, as we did, for example, in uh, 2006, I think it was, um, when all the controls were introduced Mm. on liquids that people could carry onto planes, then you take immediate action or or has just been taken by the British and American governments here. But if you um, were to to issue warnings every time you got these traces, I mean, they'd be basically in the papers every day. Uh, And I just give you a kind of reverse example, and I'll stop. There was a terrible uh, bomb in Bali uh, in October 2002, and um, many people were, were... uh, killed, many more injured, including, from recollection, 33 uh, UK uh, citizens. I was asked uh, whether I'd seen any intelligence about this and what I'd done on it. Well, the truth was, and I made this clear to the House of Commons, I'd seen one piece of intelligence which said that we have information that terrorists may be operating within in- Indonesia, which is this huge archipelago, at some stage in the relatively near future. Uh, and I was then criticised for the fact that I quote, hadn't acted on it. But the question is, uh, I mean, in the end, people said, well, all right, we understand the position you're taking, Mr. Straw. What could I have done with this single piece of, uh, of evidence? And we, say, you know, we couldn't have closed, closed down every flight uh, to Indonesia. The Indonesian government would have gone completely mad. And, and also, there was no way in which that particular piece of intelligence alone... Uh, could have assisted us to know that there was going to be this attack, roughly speaking, in that period in Bali. Right. Let's hear um, yeah. Anne-Marie Slaughter's response to that. Well, I, I, you know, I, yes, you can imagine just being swamped with various threats. I still think that something, and, and, and knowing that you might have terrorism in Indonesia, that's a whole country, but the example that I used was, was much more specific, that it, we actually had evidence uh, that people were learning to take off planes and not land them. Now, you could say, well, but if you disseminate that, no one's going to want to get on a plane, and I, I accept uh, uh, that 
risk, but you could also imagine thinking, okay, why are they going to do that? And again, we have the luxury of, of hindsight. Mm. Um, looks like somebody's probably going to either hijack a plane or do something. And if you disseminated, let's let's um, let's imagine you you just took the top. Uh, pieces of intelligence you have with the gravest implications and put those out there and then let people find out and contribute we don't that could have been happening in other places right in other flight schools so a part of, I, I accept the point that you can't flood the the public with everything you know but I still think there's a whole area in which the public could actually contribute that is part of this sort of more transparent participatory government that we sort we do have to move to so just following that that one of the the notions of this more transparent uh, approach to government there will clearly be a role there for the big tech companies, and you talk about that uh, in the book, there being almost a new social and political contract and the relationship with government. Because I, I want to hear what uh, Jeff, who's obviously looked at this very closely, what he thinks of this, but just give us a, a thumbnail sketch of how you imagine that relationship should work, because they obviously play such a big part in our lives. What, 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 how, what the, uh, how, how should that relationship Well, this is where I get in trouble with some of our... our biggest funders for New America, and we have a good relationship with the tech companies, and we hope that continues. But I do say, uh, I say a couple of things. One, I, I, monopolies are, are worrisome no matter what industry they are in. Concentrations of power over the long term are troublesome. Uh, and if you think back to the railroads and other uh, oil companies, uh, telecommunication companies, you do need to break them up at some point, and you need competition. Uh, so that's one point. I talk about distributing power in open society. And even though uh, many of us think, and certainly the members of the tech, big tech companies think their industry is for good, you still need more distributed power. The other thing I talk about is all of us owning our own data, that the presumption should be we own our own data, and then we decide to sell it or to... to uh, uh, do with it as we will. Now, in theory, we do own our data. We all sign those, you know, you get your, your iPhone and there's this long thing and you have to sign it away and you sign it. Uh, it I, I mean something much more meaningfully where you have, a, you have your data, you have a data locker. They're starting to do this actually in France. And then you can decide what to do with it uh, after that. But I think the relationship that there's a big power imbalance and a data imbalance, and we're going to have to write those balances. And, and the power balance is the data balance, because yes. they yes. hold your yeah, data. Exactly. And so, so, Jeff, what do you think about, the, about this? What should be? They play such a huge <clears throat> part in our lives now. Anne-Marie's book makes the point that there are more um, you know, Facebook users than there are citizens of any country in the world. What's the right relationship? Well, just to go, go back one step, I mean, in terms of how governments work, probably everyone in this room would instinctively prefer governments to be open and transparent, and over the last few years, there has been an enormous wave of opening up of data, finding out how your money is being spent, how laws are made, but it has not translated into greater trust. Mm. And I think that tells us something very important about the networked world, which is just having more information and more data without a capacity to interpret it, to make sense of it, to see what is true, leads to um, what some call monkey mind, <laughs> leads to, to, to noise and actually makes it harder to see the patterns. You see this in finance, probably the most you know, heavily digitized industry, obsessed with nanosecond to nanosecond trades, but often very poor at spotting longer-term 
uh, patterns. And that's why I would be a bit wary about releasing every fragment of, of intelligence uh-huh. into the public because without, say, the capacity to make sense, uh, you could lead to just a, a, a state of paranoia. And I think that, that, that relates very much to the, the potential new social contract with the big tech firms. Personally, I'd agree entirely with Anne-Marie that in the medium term, the idea that we can fund our entire digital economy with our personal data essentially being sold by Facebook and Google to advertisers, where we are not the consumers, we are just, as it were, people to be farmed. We are the product. We are the product. That is probably not sustainable, and more sophisticated publics will demand some control and some rights. But the other issue very much brought to the fore in the last few months by the the Trump election is the responsibility of the networks to have some role in encouraging truth versus lies, good relationships rather than bad ones. And in a way, that's a slight bringing back of a kind of hierarchy into the world of the network, where not all information is equal. And this is where you mentioned Thomas Friedman's book from mm. when it was 20 years ago, which was the high point of a certain claim that openness plus technology plus liberalisation, globalisation will be good for everyone. A lot of that didn't turn out as promise, and it was particularly wrong on this point, the assumption that on its own, free flow of information would lead to knowledge which would lead to wisdom. That sometimes happens, but sometimes the opposite happens. We're going to open up in a minute or two. There's just a last couple of points I just thought useful to bring out from the book so we can then, there's more for for all of you to sort of bite on. One of the things that's very interesting is you talk about mayors and city governments Mm. and how important they are. And a lot of people have been saying similar things, particularly after the election uh, of Donald Trump, where they've been saying, but, you know, there's this really good relationship between, you know, London and um, San Francisco, say. And so what I felt reading that was that I am sure that sounds so encouraging that there, are, there may be, you know, the mayor of Baltimore doing very good things about clean transport, etc. How much can they do when you have a president who is, for example, gutting? The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The Environmental Protection Agency slashing the budgets doesn't believe in man-made climate change, human-made climate change. You know, the, are, are we just clutching at straws? <laughs> Didn't mean that. Just Can't found be the first going time there. you've heard that. Sorry. Just, <laughs> it won't be the last time. Um, just <laughs> found myself going down that dead end. Um, are we just clutching at straws to think that, you know, uh, uh, because a lot of people are doing that right now. They're thinking in the Brexit world and in the Trump world, maybe we can have these little relationships that just keep things going for now, and in fact, you used an interesting word to me when just before we came here about how you see politics there. But why don't you take it up? <laughs> uh, so I do. I, I I won't say that you know a, a world in which American cities are all working to reduce emissions is as good as that world plus the American federal government uh, reducing emissions. There is a, a, a definite net loss there. But I will say. Uh, that if you look at the 7,000 mayors around the world who are party to, who are part of the Global Covenant of Mayors, different organizations that um, Michael Bloomberg put together and, and others, who were part of the Paris Agreement. So whatever Donald Trump does, those mayors are still part of the Paris Agreement, and they still have the ability to impose emissions controls within their cities. Uh, and in many ways, they, they are much closer... <laughs> to the coal face uh, than than the federal government uh, is. So there there is capacity uh, in our towns and communities, and it's important, independent uh, of who rules. But aren't those things voided if the federal standards, for example, on emissions from cars, that's a decision taken, as I understand, I think Trump has proposed, getting rid of that control. What can an individual mayor do if the national, you you know, US-wide rules on engines are altered to mean to allow emitting I mean they're different standards so EPA has standards he can gut but the real standards in the United States are set by California right and every and because California is the largest uh, auto market, the car manufacturers long ago uh, adapted to California. And similarly, with within uh, cities, if you want to control traffic, you can control traffic. If you want to right. say, you know, you can't, you you have to actually uh, drive less. So there, there are multiple layers, but the cities can do a lot. Just a brief comment on this. T- today, the mayor of Seoul in South Korea was in London meeting Sadiq Khan signing an agreement on car emissions as part of this new foreign policy of uh, city-to-city collaboration. And he's interesting, actually, in terms of other themes of of Amory's book, in that he was elected as an outsider almost entirely using social media, not using a traditional uh, party structure, then uh, re-elected. And Seoul is the most broadband-connected city on earth, so it's a kind of microcosm of where, where our politics might head. And he has outside his city hall a huge ear to symbolize really a, a listening sort of city administration, not just doing things to people, but governing with people. And even more interesting, a few weeks ago, he was under a lot of pressure to stand for president uh, and decided, uh, in fact, he could probably do more as mayor of a city of 11 million people than as president. Mm. And that might have been slightly influenced by the fact that the current president went to jail on Friday. <laughs> yes. But who knows? <laughs> since, 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 
Jeff just mentioned that thing about the ear symbolising governing with people, and one of the phrases you use is government with the people. Yes. And people are famously Lincoln's words of of the people and by the people and for the people, but you say with the people. What does government with the people look like? Well, it's exactly the things actually that Nesta works on and that, that uh, a number of, of uh, people in the Obama administration work on, which is, again, that government with the people assumes government can provide data, government and, and interpreted uh, data. Government can create platforms and spaces for citizens to work with government in solving problems. So if you just think about traffic uh, as, a, as a great example where you need citizens to be sending in uh, what's happening with respect to traffic at different times and government to create that platform. In the United States, uh, Google has done that, but, but in many ways, uh, cities can do that, but they need their citizens to participate with them. Or things uh, in Boston, the new urban mechanics, where are their potholes and, and when do they come and how, so that the uh, people can both report and then also people can create technology or uh, local solutions uh, working hand in hand with their government. Yeah, I, 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 and I agree with this, but you know, there are occasions when uh, mayors, politicians, have to make decisions without consulting everybody. In London, we have a congestion charge, yes. uh, and it has helped to transform London transport. It was introduced in a manifesto by Ken Livingstone, but just pushed through against a but lot But he was of, elected on... Yeah, he was, but it was, it was one of a number of things in his manifesto. No mm. one paid that much attention to it. In Greater Manchester, they had to have a referendum yeah. on it, and guess what? All the drivers, I mean, understandably, who were going to be affected by it, voted it down. So there are kind of limits, if you want to see progress, uh, to complete plebiscitary democracy. Can I also, before we, we're now going to widen up, but before we do, just two questions about your time as Foreign Secretary, one of which you'll like and one you won't like. So, <laughs> so the, the, the question you're, I think we'll like will, will be, it strikes me, given everything we've just been hearing, that it was much easier to do the job of a Foreign Secretary in that world than it is in this world that, that, that we've been, that's been described. In other words, when it was a bit more chessboard-like, you yes. were having to operate on that dimension. Well, I mean, there are two things here. One is... Was it chessboard or was it network? And the the, the other question is, how how ubiquitous was IT? It was pretty ubiquitous then, Mm. so things had speeded up. Um, But it was certainly much, much faster than it had been 20 years before that. What what we didn't have to worry about is our 140 characters on Twitter, uh, even if we were being careful about, about those 140 characters. But also no WikiLeaks or any of that stuff there. Well, you had to worry about leaks. No, we had lots, quite a lot of leaks, uh, as it happens. Uh, but not on that scale. Not on that everything scale. everything you write down yeah. is going to become bad. Yeah. So what was the one... So the one I didn't like was about trust. And the, the idea that um, what Jeff said was that you, know, you can release all this data and it doesn't show an increase in trust. A big part of both the Brexit vote and the Trump vote, it is said, was a huge and almost you know, global breakdown in trust in the established order. Yeah. In our little corner of this, it, there is a persuasive view that the rot set in with the Iraq decision, that that was when trust was broken, and that you know, it's a long time to go from 2003 yeah. to the Brexit vote in 2016, but you can trace a deterioration of trust from then to finally voters saying, I've had it with all of you, and voting to leave the European Union. Do you accept any of that? Well, I accept some of it, certainly. I mean, that, that, that uh, what happened, not actually at the time of the military action, because there was 
popular support for yeah. it. But afterwards, the aftermath certainly has undermined trust. But there was, that, that seems to me to be incontrovertible. Um, what is the case, however, Jonathan, is that if you, if you track, look at um, trust levels going right back to the late stages of the last war, you will see that trust in politicians was low even in, as we quotes were winning the war. Um, I mean, really quite significantly low. And it's a bit lower now. Uh, but there's always been a, a, a crisis of trust in politicians. Uh, and to some extent, that's really healthy. And, and the thing that I think strikes most people who are in active politics is the difference between people's level of trust in politicians in general and their level of trust in the politicians they know. Mm. So, I mean, just since you mentioned Iraq, and I don't blame you for a second for that, um, although there were lots and lots of people in my constituency who didn't like what I'd done, uh, they nonetheless uh, approved of the fact that I, for example, put myself up on a soapbox in the town centre week after week in the middle of the Iraq war and the aftermath to take questions, uh, made myself accountable, and at the following election in 2005, my majority only went down by 1,500. Mm. Um, so, it, I mean, I th- it's, it's, this issue of trust is, is complicated. Mm. Let's um, hear some questions from people here. and I'm going to take them in little groups if, if I can. There's a hand up there. If we get a microphone to the chap here, and we've got a hand up there. And there's one. And we'll, if we get a third one here. So, that will, so let's go with you first, then we'll go right to the back of the room and then here. Yeah. <coughs> Good evening. My name's James. Thank you very much for, for sharing. I've just a uh, question. I'm an entrepreneur and a, a founder of a network called Causa. It's like a location-based app that connects people on the go. And my question is around kind of the interest in the panel's view. With the world becoming digit- more digitally connected, are you concerned that people are actually becoming more isolated mm. in today's society? Thank you. And uh, questioner at the back. Hi. Uh, Tim Hughes, director of the Think Tank and participation organisation involved. Uh, so arguably over the last 10 years we've had lots of experiments in doing government with the people on the smaller issues, yet at the same time people have kind of felt left behind on many of the big kind of transformational changes in society. So I want to kind of put it to you, how would you take that kind of government with the people from the small issues up to the much larger issues? Thank you. Um, I'm going to just ask you this for one, Jeff, first, on the, the one that was our first question about the notion that we're more connected and yet more isolated. And I look at, you know, my own teenage children and their friends, you know, glued behind the phones, etc. There is something a bit alienated, to use that sort of old-fashioned word, about how people, what technology does to people and their human connection. They're connecting with other people and yet they're just there. Yeah, I think that is the kind of vision of hell of the modern world. You have lots of Facebook friends, but you couldn't rely on them for anything which counted. You know, if your life went into, into crisis. And there was this amazing statistic in the US that I think in the sort of 20 years after the arrival of the World Wide Web, the proportion of Americans who said they had no one to turn to uh, in a crisis went up from something like 5% to 25%. Mm. Uh, and we have here in this country in many ways an epidemic of loneliness and isolation, not just amongst older people, but many teenagers and others. And it's become a, a very live issue for public policy. And I could bore you about what, what that means, and we're involved in various programs to try and reduce isolation. And I think it's why it's so important for, if you have children, to teach them, yes, to be very adept at navigating the web, 
coding, making apps and bots and all sorts of stuff, but also learning how to create genuine relationships of intimacy and reciprocity. Because if they only live in a digital world, it may let them down when things really matter. What do you think about that, Anne-Marie? Well, I... I, I, uh... Very much agree on the on the point, of course, that you you can be digitally connected, but you no longer know your neighbors. You know, and and again, that's part of the of the filter bubble that we no longer know people who think differently than we do. That mm. we're not on these cross cutting networks, which were really community based. Again, you'd know the parents of the people your children were in school with. You might know people from a sports team that you were on, or from from uh, and and from your work. And those those cross cutting personal networks. Uh, are critical, but I also write about the the need. A network is not just being connected. Right? It can be, but that's not a live network. A live network. If you think about who's in your social network, who makes the network work, it's the person who is constantly, you know, looking around and saying, "Did you know that your that this other person actually is doing this, and it would be important for the two of you to get together?" It takes a lot of energy and and. Uh, knowledge and sort of scanning the network to to translate those those links into real human connection. Uh, Jack, I want to put to you the thing that was put our second question. I think about people who might be left behind by technology. It just struck me that maybe in this you know rarefied corner of uh, of London we're doing that. Which is, does a lot of this stuff apply to the people who are plugged in and are connected and are educated and often urban? And actually, the phrase of 2016 really not apply to those who are left behind. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the, the, the explanations for the, the Trump and Brexit phenomenon uh, is that although in, in the UK, uh, people in, uh, outside the London and the South East and university cities are for sure almost as connected as those uh, within these cities, they feel less involved and there is a feeling of being more detached of society being run by them, us lot, uh, rather than by, by themselves. I don't think it's, it's quite inchoate, it's difficult to put your finger on it, but, it, but it's certainly, I think, very powerfully there that, that this, the same concentration of power which we now see in Google and Facebook and so on, people also, I, I think, imperceptibly feel is, is taking place in terms of who is running our society. Mm. I half wondered with those votes whether the people were giving a kick to the politicians and, you know, to Hillary Clinton because they couldn't give a kick to Google and Facebook and the other people who actually really yeah. run things. But what do you think, both of you? Well, I think if you're feeling disconnected and disempowered, and plenty of people do, I, I live in Luton outside London, which is a very Brexity yeah. uh, 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 town. For some people, the answer to that is more hierarchy. That's why people vote for Trump, mm. Putin, or Modi, or Abe. In a way, they offer a return to big male power and the hierarchy as the answer to people's questions. But in, in, to my mind, actually, for many people, what they need is better quality networks. So take the, you know, an 85-year-old with multiple conditions, and probably all have you know, friends and relatives in that condition who are isolated. What they best need is a network which can support them, which can be there, and that will be partly face-to-face, neighbours and family, but it can increasingly be supported by digital technology, which can support care, love sure. and attention in ways which were never possible in the past. And the same applies to someone unemployed looking for a job. They need better quality networks which link them into the skills they need, the job opportunities and so on. So this has become, I think, a great battleground. It's why Amory's book is so timely. Between almost two opposite 
solutions to these problems of, of a sense of disconnection and powerlessness. Great. We've got a question here, and we've got another one here. Yeah. Questions. The first one is, how do you all feel, not just uh, the lady on stage, but the fact that these uh, big tech companies are entirely run by men? Increasingly, we know about their bro culture. They're not exactly the ones we look to for quality relationship issues and skills. Uh, they are designing our future. Do you think they're going to do the, the networked world that we all aspire to? And, and we are... What do you think about this alternative reality we've landed in rather than having Clinton, Merkel, Lagarde as a trinity innovation we could have hoped for? We are stuck with uh, May bickering on one side with Merkel and on Sturgeon on the other. What a sad catfight we're witnessing. Oh. <laughs> uh, there we are, Julia, yep. Uh, Julia Hobsbawm, I've got a... Perhaps stand up if you can. I've got yeah. a close interest in this area. I, I wondered whether you feel part of the problem with policymakers is they don't actually want to change their behaviour in relation to what network science teaches us. And I'm particularly interested, Anne-Marie, in your thought on the social network science around periphery mm -hmm. and the peripheral. We see it every time there's a terrorist attack... We see it in the epidemiology of the spread of everything from Ebola to uh, sexually transmitted diseases, which is it actually comes from the edge and the periphery. And government doesn't seem able to manage this. And I wondered if you agree that the spatial awareness of governments in the behaviour of networks matters, and in particular this question of the periphery. Thank you. And I think we're going to have a last one here. If we can just bring the microphone to the gentleman here... Perhaps if you are able to stand, that would be good. My name is David Howell. I got an interest in this because I read a book uh, 18 years ago called The Edge of Now, in which I quoted uh, Anne-Marie, as a matter of fact, uh, arguing that the, th the whole thing was going to play out two ways. Uh, it was going to be a two-edged sword. This is before social Twitter, but certainly the rise of the internet occurred. And what I argued was that there was going to be a lot of liberty and an unravelling of authority as a result of of the networks and everyone having a mobile phone and information revolution. But there was also going to be a lot of seizure of power by uh, non-state groups and indeed a trend to anarchy. So anarchy and liberty were going to run together out of this system. And the question was, how, was the, how are the leaders of the future going to uh, balance the two? In particular, how are they going to cope with the fantastic volatility of endless networks and endless inputs of changing public opinion um, when it came to the need for some established long-term decision, some unpopular, somebody long-sighted, which will be required by government. If I just give um, a, a, a perfect example, I served in, I think I'm the only human being who served in the governments of uh, Ted Heath, and then 30 years later in the governments of Cameron. Uh, Ted Heath, when I ran a department, uh, I took, we decided in the mornings to, uh, and under Mrs. Thatcher, we decided every morning on our policy with the ministers and then brought in the PR men and the spin experts and so on to carry it through. That was a day's work. We began with the ministerial prep. When I got back to the Foreign Office 30 years later, I found it the other way around. Hmm. <laughs> the spin experts and the press men and the PR who were called in first thing in the morning to work out what the public was saying. <coughs> they changed since last week. And uh, then the ministers were called in to somehow implement it and catch up. 
So what one was seeing was really government desperately weakened, any serious government, by instant and continuous volatility, everything changing all the time. And really, my, I love the analysis of Amari, and I always have, but the question is, how do you stop it running almost like uh, cancer cells? How do you stop it like, running to anarchy and undermining itself and producing a total volatility and a lack of any long-term decision? Well, we'll hear from that, and I was just going to add to that, it's not just the public who are tweeting different things every morning. In your case, it is the head of the government <laughs> who is who is doing that, and, and that does, must change the climate as well. Well, look, there's lots there to go on. Um, what, what, why, because it's fresh in our minds, what, what, do you want to respond to just that last question from David Howell, who is himself a former foreign yes, minister, indeed. minister in other areas, just the notion that the, it is just impossible for the old forms of government to keep up with yep. this very yep. networked and contracted timescale, among other things, he said. Well, I'm, I'll give it a try. Uh, I, I actually think uh, that... The idea of uh, predicting and planning simply does not hold. I say that as a former director of policy planning. And the idea that we could predict what is likely to happen in the next six months, much less the next five years, and then plan for it is no longer true. That the best we can do is to adapt and respond in ways that do at least push forward big goals. So you can still set goals and principles, uh, but then you are in an adaptive, responsive uh, um, environment. It's, it's really... I say this to corporations, too. I mean, you, you cannot have a fixed plan that you try to implement. You can respond in ways that either push your agenda forward or, or push back against someone else's agenda. And this goes back to what the form of government needs to be. Because if I think about the way I worked in the State Department with this huge hierarchy of, you know, every time a paper went up to the secretary, it had to be cleared through about 10 levels, and that took a week. And by the time... And if she wanted something done, it had to go back through those levels. That won't work. We need much smaller groups. I mean, indeed, <laughs> President Trump is doing that by simply running it all out of the White House and cutting out the State Department altogether. His I immediate family. I would not group, go that far, but I would say that if I were to reorganize the State Department, it would be much more in terms of small task groups who were seized with particular issues, with, again, setting broad goals broad principles, but otherwise letting people respond. Now, I would not let the PR people drive that. I would let the, the actual um, content people drive that, but in a very different uh, mode of, of actually working. Jeff, I think you wanted to get in on this. Yes, I mean, if the question is, has anarchy sort of spread across the world? Well, certainly at 3 a.m. when the tweets come out, it feels like it. Mm. And in a way, it did with the Arab Spring, when you saw networks play a hugely important role in dismantling regimes, but being wholly unsuited to then the reconstruction. But I wouldn't really agree with the diagnosis David Howell said. And I'm just going to give two very different examples of governments almost improvising a very different way of navigating this. So one is China. China probably spends more money and time and human power, as it were, tracking social media and what the networks are saying than probably every other government combined. They literally employ tens of thousands of people to see what the citizens are saying on Weibo and so on, partly as a tool of social control, but partly actually as a tool of responsiveness. 
As a, and they would sometimes claim they're more democratic than the Western governments with three spin doctors in, in the Prime Minister's office in, in a, working in a much cruder way. And I don't think you could say China was a hyper-responsive, you know, um, slightly hysterical uh, decision-maker. You wanted to get in on this. Yeah, really picking up David Howell's uh, question about whether the, the digital world had put spin doctors in charge of government. Uh, I'll let you into a secret, David, uh, which is if you go back 24, three years uh, to when Tony Blair uh, became leader, um, the spin doctors were uh, pretty powerful uh, then uh, and, and there was no, uh, no digital network. Um, I think, I'm picking up a, a point that Jeff has made, is that, that we've got a it's a responsibility of decision makers, of ministers and politicians, to get a balance in their lives and in the life of their policy making between looking over their shoulder a bit at what's going on, and you've got to, you know, the, we all, there, there's a, a point which can be reached where you've got to respond immediately, but not allowing the clutter outside to paralyse you. And actually, I'd, I think. We do need planning. I mean, if you need planning for different scenarios, but the idea that we should kind of just muddle along, waiting for things to happen, I don't think you're quite saying that, Anne-Marie, but I think half of you were, was, I, th- I think is, is wrong. We need more planning and uh, thinking about the future and the, 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 the possibilities uh, that may happen. But I, I don't think the digital world should renders government impossible, David, at all. Let Anne-Marie just come back on that very no, micro I, I mean, point. I absolutely believe we should have scenarios uh, and, and imagine possible things that could happen and what are we going to do to respond to them. If that, that kind of planning, absolutely. But, the, uh, but uh, what I don't think we can do is lay out, you know, all right, here's our goal and here is how we're no, going to achieve sure, it sure. because yeah. it yeah. is just too sure. responsive. So let's, a good moment to go to Julia Hobson's question where she was talking about policymakers are either are not changing or maybe even don't want to change yeah. uh, their own behaviour in the light of what she called interestingly network science. In other words, all this evidence that you and Jeff particularly follow so closely, uh, there, are, there are conclusions there. I hadn't heard this point that Julia made about the periphery, that so many of our problems come from, as she characterised the periphery. So t- maybe just tell us about that, but, if, but also, is she right to think that policymakers are putting their fingers in their ears rather than reacting and listening to all this new evidence? Yes, she is. And I'll just give, uh, Julia has a book coming out next month called <laughs> Fully Connected, which I have, uh, it also is on this theme. I think very much so. At the end of, of uh, Chessboard and the Web, I, I discussed being the dean of the public policy school at Princeton uh, for seven years, and we teach everybody some economics, some statistics, some politics, some psychology. We teach them nothing about networks and nothing about technology, and yet actually, I would argue that a network map should be the new memo. Right, that instead of a kind of the memo where you say, well, we, you know, there are three options and please choose mine, which is what most memos say, uh, <laughs> you, you, you should exactly, if you were looking at terrorism or a lone shooter or, a, as you say, a health issue, you would map the network of what do we know, who's connected to whom, and where are people uh, on that network. And your point about the peripheral is that it's often the disconnected person 
who is so dangerous. I mean, you, we were, you were talking about people who are lonely uh, and, and the ways in which technology can make them less lonely, but it is often exactly the person who feels on the outside, who, who doesn't have the right kinds of connections, who can do the most damage. It's perfectly possible to, to use tech, the mapping technology we now have to identify those people and to, to take action. To show the people not on the map. Yes, exactly. Um, the question from you right at the beginning about men, the big tech companies are run by men and uh, not men who you would think at a first glance are particularly gifted in the social, emotional intelligence <laughs> areas. I take my knowledge from Aaron Sorkin's The Social Network, so I may be wholly distorting it, but that's one of the things that said, what do you think? Um, is that, has, that, has that had a bearing on how these networks have unfolded, that the people at the top are not you know, necessarily equipped in the way that you've been describing? Yes, and, and indeed, uh, you know, we're watching the destruction or the, the, certainly the, the problems of Uber right now from a CEO who exemplifies everything you're, you're talking about. And I will say, New America has lots of, of engineers who work with us, and this idea of programmer culture is right. well established. Uh, and it's a particular... Uh, type of culture that is often many women feel deeply uncomfortable in. And aside from sort of immaturity and, and lack of diversity and the value of diversity in decision-making generally, uh, it's also critically important in terms of designing algorithms because, you know, the, these are the people who are writing algorithms and these, so they are the ones who are thinking about what do the machines who got, that govern our lives need to know? And so the classic example is that you can ask Siri, uh, you know, if you break your leg or you have a, some kind of physical accident and you ask Siri what to do, Siri can tell you. It, until recently, if you'd been raped, she couldn't or, he, or it couldn't, uh, whatever we call uh, Siri. But, and that's just one example of a question that a man who was designing that algorithm did not think to ask. But there are many others. And it isn't just women. It's people of color. It's people of different classes. It's, it's, if, if our online life is going to mirror our physical life, then all the people who make up our physical life have got to be responsible for designing those algorithms. Algorithms. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be uh, in, a, in really a physically designed or a, a virtually designed world uh, that will be radically inadequate. Uh, Jeff, was it fair, my little bit of sort of gen gender stereotyping, or in your experience of the people running the tech companies, do they have a bit of a tin ear for the kind of stuff Anne-Marie was just talking about? I mean, they're, they're slightly more mixed than they used to be, but there clearly is a bias there. And, and I, I love you quote um, uh, Britain's great IT pioneer Steve Shirley, who was a female, had to call herself Steve. <laughs> so people wouldn't know right. she's a woman. So there is a long history of, of, yeah. of this. I just want to mention very briefly just on, on, on Trump, because I, I think the networks are, as you said, in many ways our protection against dictatorship, oppression, and our protection against lies. And I would partly read what's happened to Trump as a, a situation where it's easier for outsiders to break in. He was an outsider who mm. broke in. Macron in France at the moment has created a new movement from nothing, en marche, which may win power in a few months' time. Beppe Grillo in Italy is an outsider who may win power this year. So that's what the technology has enabled. It's easier to organise for whatever purpose, you know, from the Good most unpleasant to the most yeah. progressive. Yeah. And that makes it interesting but unpredictable. 
Thank you. We should have perhaps given the last word to Anne-Marie, but you are going... No, no, that was my fault. But we are going... You, people will have the chance to get your first word because they can go after our session is finished to buy and get signed by you a copy of your uh, terrifically stimulating new book. Uh, it only remains for me, and therefore I hope with all of you, to thank our panellists, Jack Straw, Jeff Mulgan, and, of course, Anne-Marie Slaughter. <laughs>